Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We are moving on to the third round. All three of them are, and all three of us are, in the show today. Is she What's ready? Going on? What is going on? Is she even ready? Is she ready to play? I mean, I sorry, know sorry, sorry. Are you Amy, guys ready? Amy, you're not ready to start the show. What are you doing over there? Wow, I don't understand. My She's not ready. Amy's Amy's with the towel. Amy's in the corner with the towel. Give her, you We're ready to start the show. You give a soft warning, Gil. That's Can at least you, a soft warning. Have you guys ever seen that? First of all, Roger Federer being given a time violation warning. He's one of the quickest players ever. And then somebody being given a time violation warning as the returner. It, it's yeah. uh yeah, I've never seen it in my life. Let me just say, because we need to be mindful of the people only listening and not watching. We start the show. Amy's got her white towel. She's toweling off her, her grip. And of course, Roger Federer, uh, we had a very interesting scenario. So we'll get into that. Federer beat Marin Cilic in four sets. Nadal beat Gazke in three sets. Six love, seven, five, six, two. And uh, Djokovic beat Cuevas also in straight sets. Six, two, six, three, six, four. Joel, what did you think of the whole towel situation? Oh, I think that was kind of funny. I mean, I think the, the waiting and seeing Roger, it's always a little interesting when you see Roger get a little, little bent out of things. You just It shows you how precise he is and how aware he is of all the kind of rules and things that are going on. And he said he didn't think that he was playing that slow, but if I want to, he's just getting used to certain things with, I can't go to the towel anymore. That's okay. You just see how, how ritualized in the Roger way he is. I mean, all of these great players build their things for their own patterns. And it's just so interesting to see how Roger kind of, kind of navigated. It also got him a little, a little out of sorts for a while. Yeah, I mean, last show I said uh, if the towel is his biggest problem, then he probably doesn't have much of a problem. I guess he does, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, it was really odd to hear Roger Federer say to Marin Cilic in a grand slam to say, Marin, was I playing slow, man? <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah, um, was I playing too slow? Yeah, yeah, but what happened? It's it's like a confluence of unusual events because Chilich's uh, pre-serve routine, he uses his time differently than most players do. He actually doesn't use the time on the front end uh, like Nadal does to towel off or get the ball that he wants. He gets quickly to the line, and then he uses the time um, on the back end of the time window and he bounces a lot and he looks at where the returner is standing and maybe bounces some more and Roger as the returner should have a, a few seconds to gather himself. So Roger was trying to towel off, but Marin was already at the line. So, you know, Marin was ready to serve and, and his argument in the changeover to the chair umpire was it's server's pace. 
So I think you need to give Roger a, a time violation warning. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. But Federer spoke about it. He says, but the thing is, obviously, when he sits his foot down to go through the serve, and I'm quoting Federer, he's not quite ready yet. He still takes 10 bounces. And then Federer says, I'm not in the mood to stand there and just be his, you know, sort of, here I am so you can get ready. Start bouncing already. <laughs> and I rock up when I feel like it's also I'm ready to go. I mean, it's so interesting, these little things. This, this is the neat parts about the game that's fun about the pros. And you can extend it to all certain levels, whether it's the, um, whether it's the, the quick serve or the, or the person who takes too much time or any of these things. It's just, it's, it's neat. And I like, I like the thing you cited, Amy, about better talking to him. I think it's pretty fun when the players acknowledge one each other. We, we, we don't see that, but we know it's true. They know each other. I mean, they vacation together. They practice together. So they're just kind of like talking to each other. Right. I, I like that. I like that that happens. Well, from Marin's perspective, first of all, as Amy pointed out, he bounces the ball a million times. So if the shot, if the clock's down to 10 seconds before Roger's ready, well, that's not as much time as he wants to bounce the ball. And he, just like Roger has his routine and Federer probably gets anxious in his returners crouch for, for the 10 seconds that Chilich wants to take to bounce the ball. But just like Roger has his thing, Marin has his thing. He probably doesn't like to start bouncing the ball until the returner's ready. So like, it's this, I understand from, from both sides, I guess the question is, should uh, it goes back to like, should umpires call these things by the letter of the law or do, you know, should they kind of take, precedent into account. I mean, Federer's probably never been called for a time violation on return in his entire career. I've never seen it in my life, but the rule says that you should go at a reasonable server's pace as the returner. So it's interesting. Well, I think maybe the rule needs to be written to take this kind of thing into account or tweaked um, because the returner should be allowed 10 or 15 seconds to gather himself. If, if it was really humid out, if the returner absolutely really needs to towel really quickly. I feel like he should be allowed to do that. Now, maybe if he's toweling ev between every single point, maybe, I mean, what do you guys think? Well, the server's pace thing, well, wait a second. Do we have a time clock or what's the server's pace? But it's kind of, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's definitely some wiggle room in this. Another interesting moment in this match uh, came in the third set tiebreak, which wound up being very, very pivotal. It was the first point of the tiebreak. Chilich hit a serve. It was called out. And then the, well, no, it was called in. The chair umpire goes to check the mark. And he says, okay, Mark's out. And Federer goes, no, no, it's in. You have the point because it, it was an ace. What did you make of that, Amy? I think what happened was Federer was looking at the mark and he said he mumbled or he said to Marin, good, you know, it was in. And then the chair umpire comes down to look at it and he says, out. And then Federer says, no, you can have the point. So it was extraordinary to me because it was a pivotal point in the match. I mean, that first point of a tiebreaker, it, it really is meaningful. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this guy's calling his own lines now. And he just awarded Chilich the point. For what it's worth on the US Tennis Channel uh, telecast, Hawkeye, for what it's worth, said that it was out. So the chair umpire was wrong and Federer was wrong. But um, 
Gil, you you say that that's not reliable, so that's that's fine. Yeah, right. The the problem with Hawkeye on clay is they would need to because the surface moves, they would need to calibrate it all the time, which they don't. So for a call that close, you can't really rely on Hawkeye. Joel, were you surprised that that Federer well, it's just surrendered the point? You know, it's also interesting with this stuff. With minimal people watching, there isn't this whole X factor of people yelling and screaming and what's going on. And, you know, oftentimes in tennis, when umpires are doing things, we don't know, you know, we don't have the NFL guy comes out or who explains what's going on. So instead we have um, Roger, is he taking it into his own hands? And then Federer won the next point. So it was almost like this, okay, it's one all. Now we play the tie break. I mean, it was just, it was just a little peculiar. It was definitely strange. I mean, maybe, Maybe sometimes uh, that can give somebody confidence, you know, like, uh, whatever, you take the point, I'm going to win this doggone thing anyway. I, I, I don't know, but it really struck me as unusual at the pro well, level. Well, you know, once upon a time, this is a, this is a story, I'm going to go way back in the way back machine. In the amateur okay. days, way back in the 20s and 30s, if you got a bad call, my alleged gentleman thing to do was to then toss the next point and kind of quid pro it. However, a great story. I love this story. I've told it 50 times. Uh, Don Budge was about to play Gottfried von Krom in, at Wimbledon in the semis. And Krom said to Budge, I hope you improve your sportsmanship when we play. He goes, what do you mean? Well, you, I saw you the other day. Your opponent got a bad call and you threw the point. And Budge goes, I thought that's good sportsmanship. And Krom said, Don't you, you decided you were above the law. You took the law into your own hands and you humiliated that linesman in front of 10,000 people. Mm. And so, so I'm going to propose this to you, Don. Let's just take the calls as they come. And we'll mm. just be it that way. And we're not going to engage in this kind of, I'll give you one, you give me one. Yeah. Because for example, it's one thing to see to be that old magnanimous at two all in the first set, whatever. Now it's four all in the third and I get a bad call. You're going to then toss the next point for me. Now, the one great example, the unbelievable example in tennis history is Mats Wielander has match points on Jose Luis Clerc in the 1982 French semis. And here's Wielander. He's 17 and he hits a shot um, or Clerc hits a shot that's called out match Wielander. And the umpire even says and Clerc protests and Wielander says, no, that was that was in. And and the chair says, well, you know, you won. And Bielander goes, he makes kind of the exceptional appeal and says, I don't want to win a match that way. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to be in the locker. I don't want, I'm 17 years old. I don't want to spend my career being known as the person who took a match point on a ball I saw that was in. Mm -hmm. So Bielander finally made like the exceptional appeal and they played the point again and Bielander won it and all was right with the world and so on. <laughs> so this stuff about handing and giving and kind of like more or less bypassing the officials. It's a little tricky, but then you're right. There was Roger and it quickly evened out. It's one all. I know it's, it's strange how this stuff goes with calls. Well, that's why Joel's a historian for the tennis hall of fame, but uh, I just thought it was good <laughs> sportsmanship by, by Roger. I think he looked at the mark and he was like, no, what are you talking about? That's in. And I mean, I guess it, it frees his mind a little bit. Maybe if you believe in karma, you don't want to, uh, you don't want that call, but I don't know. Those are just theories. I was impressed with Rogers performance. Um, I thought that Chilich 
had some moments where he was very, very tricky. Federer weathered the storm. He he found himself in a in a you know under pressure in a tight margin tie break in the third set, a set of piece at that point and handled it really, really well. Really positive stuff for Federer, in my opinion. What do you guys think? Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With threats to our nation, waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart with our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown and through adaptable problem solving we do just that learn more at marines.com yeah, um, to me, what stood out was Federer's serve on clay. Uh, 16 aces, if I read that right. Um, yeah. And I just kept thinking, and, and he had numerous um, return errors that he got, easy points, free points off of, of Chilich. And I thought, I just kept thinking, if his serve looks this good on clay, it's going to really look good on grass. So, you know, overall, I liked what I saw. Yeah, it was a really nice effort, and then to be tested. I mean, this is the this is the most arduous match he's had in well over a year, going back to the Aussie Open and the quarterfinal versus Tennis Sandgren. So it's been a long while for Federer to have had to play that much. So that's uh, that was a good sign. And again, uh, Chilich, we talked about this before. Kind of like seems like old times. It's like, oh, Marin, I know about that. Uh, I know about that forehand. You hit a little too flat. I know that. And he just is like a dentist, Federer, right? He just mm-hmm. goes after it. Uh, Federer, w- well, in, in our last show, we talked about, or I don't know if it was the last one, but we talked about it at one point with Federer, mental rust, mental atrophy. And he is now talking about that very openly, only in a, in a positive way, that it's going away. He said, quote, uh, the mind is getting stronger. I can feel it. I have more clarity. I have more confidence. I know where to go, where not to go. And he added, it's crazy how quickly you lose that, which is exactly what we were talking about. Uh, Yet Federer still insists he has no chance in this tournament. Should we continue to believe him as he just drills that idea in our head that he has no chance? He's taking a page from Rafa here. Downplay expectations. Um, I've only won 20 majors. I've won 20 majors. I don't have a chance. This guy's great. What a day for Roger. Uh, that is pretty extraordinary for somebody who really ballyhoos the power of confidence to make a statement like that. I am not going to win the French Open. Right. Uh, I don't know. Joel, what do you think of that? <laughs> Talk is cheap. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just commentary. I mean, that's, that's the word I remember Pete Sampras used when I was interviewing. It's just commentary. And it's all this kind of like managing of expectations and, and of course, in saying these things, I don't have a chance, a chance to win, a chance to do well, a, a chance to now not play Taylor Fritz in the third round and, and whatever. I mean, just all these things, it's so, 
such a bunch of words. And I think one of the reasons I so like writing about a sport is it's the performance. In a way, the words are never more than 49% of what matters anyway. And then we see the talking with the rackets. And then we see it's not public affairs. It's not politics. It's just the ten it's the tennis. So Roger can say all the things he wants and Rafa can set his bar. And no, it, it, sometimes I look at these transcripts and I, I want to just tear them up anyway. <laughs> hmm. I, I, I believe him. I'm not going to get into, you know, analyzing okay. the long-term process, but I, I'm just going to say, I, I do believe him. I also agree though, that it's a, a total play on trying to, to trick his brain into feeling as, as less um, pressure as he can possibly feel. I think we'd, we'd all agree on that. And he said the same stuff in 2017, going into the Australian Open as the 17 seed, and he ultimately won that. It's just this is a different challenge ahead of him. Uh, but I, I do think that this was uh, really impressive, really impressive win over Chile. I thought pressure was a privilege. You know, that's just so funny about all this stuff, all these ways, things like pressure and, and expectation. I agree pressure with- is not a privilege. Well, okay, I guess it is. Was that a Billie Jean King quote? Yeah. That's like a style of our book. I mean, but that's okay. the look, how you, look how you've earned the right to have the chance to compete, and it's been a game, and it's just a game. But I don't have a chance to win. I mean, just just all this language yeah. of talking about competition, talk, 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 talk. So the matches are what really matter, and I'd rather watch. I mean, you saw, see Federer feel these beautiful backhands and these forehands. It's so it's it's just you realize how nice it is just to watch this guy do yeah. things with the racket. That's well, what matters. Yeah, I agree. And um, uh, I'll say, okay, I, I agree with BJK. I, I, pressure is a privilege, but I do think it makes you worse at tennis, generally speaking. I think she'd agree. Um, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm trying to decide, move on or, or go off of something you just said. Let me, let me go off of it. You just talked about the joy of watching Federer play. And I've been thinking the last two times I've watched him about some shots that he plays that I just don't see anyone else play. And in this match against Chilich, it was two times drop shotting off of a return off of a second serve return on the backhand. One was a winner, one set up an easy pass. And then the second one was in the fourth set when in a game that he broke, he had an approach shot on the backhand. He hit the ball just beyond the service line. And instead of going to the sideline, he went right at Chilich and then it set up an easy volley and nobody hits an approach shot right up the middle to, to, you know, try to try to jam the player. So I agree. And I'm, and then it was the fake drop shot. I would say against Istamin that I thought about, which is a shot that I have tried to hit on the court or I use it somewhat regularly. And if Roger Federer didn't exist, I would never think to switch to continental grip, show the drop shot and punch it deep. So I just, I want to echo those sentiments. If you guys any, have anything to add, I, I have been enjoying these first two rounds of Roger Federer. Pedantic- I think that's great. You, you nailed it. Good stuff. The pedantic message for me is what I call skill building. I mean, I think if I want to just bring this down to all levels of players, I've talked to Rod Laver about this. He said every great shot he ever practiced, he ever hit, he practiced a thousand times. And so get, where do people give themselves opportunities to, to play? play this way and this is going to come back to our eternal um play versus suffer gestalt about mm-hmm. saying okay i'm gonna play a match today you know what i'm gonna do my metric is this do i drop shot eight times that's the only thing that matters today when i play this singles match did i drop shot eight times did i try 
one drop shot return? Did I hit three swing volleys? And that would be a fun way to just construct your time going out and playing. And obviously, we I want to win today's match. I want to win today's match. But instead, thinking, okay, the metric is experimentation, which eventually experimentation can become a skill. You know, it's no longer an experiment. It's a skill. And the, and the joy of Federer is seeing this, this spectrum. I, I think you might have 28 tennis letters. <laughs> and, and the thing yeah. like the, the approach down the middle, which is actually, again, that's an 80, that was, that's tactics existed. It just kind of vanished. And like, like the Sabre, the Sabre, that's 100 years old. That's the chip charge. And he added some wrinkles with the running, but that's Federer just being playful. Now, granted, he has the technique to pull it off. That's... That's what's really impressive, that he can then do it. But I, I, you're so right, Gil. It's so much fun. Yep. Um, all right. Let's go to Nadal um, versus Gaz K, which that also got pretty fun, especially in the second set. It really wasn't fun in the first set and in the beginning of the second set. Uh, Amy, what did you think of Nadal's three-set win over Gaz K? That you and the Tennis Channel commentators um, – probably thought that it was a better match than I did. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I think I even fell asleep at one point. Um, so did Rafa. I got, I got, no, I, let me just back you up on this. I disengaged from the match as well in the second set. And as I disengaged, Rafa disengaged and Gaz K got back in the match. It was very, uh, we were really on the same level there. <laughs> Yeah, I think he, you know, we talked about this in our last show and he did, Gasquet did actually try some different things for him. Um, I mean, it wasn't like the underarm serve or the moon balling or, or whatever, but he stood closer to the baseline and was taking the ball on the rise, which as a one-handed backhander to see somebody take a one-handed backhand on the rise, a drive backhand like that, that is incredibly difficult. So it was cool to see him do that. And um, it, 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 he did make it a closer match, but the outcome was never really in doubt. No, but still the effort. I mean, it's so interesting kind of the sag because yeah, as we were watching, it's like Nadal, He's up a set, it's handling, he's rolling through him. And then, well, it's, it's, I guess it speaks to the kind of the, uh, the trickiness of the tennis scoring system too. I mean, it's not like these other sports, you can have a lead and consolidate and suddenly here's Gasquet, a game here, a game there. And, and he puts some things together, but yeah, no one, no one was thinking. I mean, even if Gasquet captures that second set, it's not like think, if Gasquet captures that second set, it's still nowhere near the tension of when Chilich won the second set and then that third set and mm -hmm. Roger and where's he at and Roger's got no chance to win the French and here's the king of clay. I mean, you can just see, it reminds you of the, uh, the team uh, Rafa final from a couple of years ago. So team wins the second set and then Rafa just destroys him the next yeah. two. And I think Gasquet, that was, I suspect that could happen too, but it was kind of a little interesting for a while, for a little while. Well, Gasquet is a player who hits with like a lot of spin and shape and it's just it, the, the results aren't very damaging. I would say um, he, he really needs an opening in order to actually finish a point from the baseline. And what he did was he just took his very spinny strokes and he just flattened them out. And I really didn't think he could do that. I kind of thought he was 
incapable of flattening out his forehand. And it's been a big weakness, I feel like, throughout his career. But he, he kind of forced himself to do it. And he's so talented with his racket. Like, I've watched him practice. And one of the cleanest hitters that I've ever seen, in my opinion, it was Richard Gasquet. Uh, to see him just flatten out his shots, I'm like, wow, this is great. So it, it took him a while. But I, I was almost thinking as I was watching him go to plan C to try to beat Nadal, like, why isn't this your plan A against more tour professionals? Yeah, well, he's artistic. Clear. I mean, it's it's it fits that he's French because the strokes could go in a museum, you know? Um, yeah. Well, the backhands could go in, museum, in, in one part of the museum and the foreign will go in another part of the museum because the <laughs> foreign, I've always thought, has a little bit of this kind of wiggle-waggle to it yeah. when, he, when he sets for it. But, but nonetheless, the, the, the Gasquet concept of the game I mean, and again, going back to, and he's on the cover of that magazine when, he, when he's young. So it's an, a notion, a notion of image. See, and I think, as I've said before, this is where I think Uncle Tony would have said, we're not gonna be what photographed to be on a cover of a magazine when you're nine years old, get back to work. And I think in a way, so maybe the, the image of it all, the, the, the form and the style and, and Gasquet, yeah, he definitely has, look, he's made more than $18 million. He's had a tremendously productive, great career. It's just, uh, it's just tough. It's just, it's just so interesting. All these people who have been excellent players and they've been more or less barred from excellence by three guys. You know, we see there's numerous numbers, how they've gobbled up masters thousands and slams and all that. So all these guys, all these other people have been left with kind of like 500s and two fifties and occasional this. Yeah. It's just remarkable. Well, um, better luck to Richard Gasquet uh, during grass season when I affectionately refer to him as Grasquet uh, because <laughs> his, his game becomes much more offensive, offensive on grass because the surface just helps him out that way. Um, all right. I will take uh, Djokovic Cuevas, I think, because Federer, the, the attention of the Federer match was, uh, was a diversion. So quick words on Djokovic Cuevas, and then we'll get into all three of them um, and their their third round opponents. Um, I think the thing with Novak is is his first serve dominance. Uh, he was shortening points. His first strike tennis was tremendous. He won seventy five percent of his first serve points on sixty eight percent serves in play. He hit ten aces and he won the zero through four shots category sixty to 39. I, I felt that uh, the vast majority of his service points were being played quickly. Uh, when that wasn't the case, Cuevas was uh, really, really uh, a good challenge, and they played a lot of great entertaining points, but Djokovic had that ability to, to win the easy ones, and Cuevas did not. Um, but look out for, for the, the Novak serving, because we were talking about it after he won Australia. That was kind of the main storyline. That's the best I've seen him serve in a really long time against Cuevas. And now he has Ricardus Barrancas. Do uh, go well, ahead, Amy. We're not just a note to our listeners and viewers. We're not giving Novak the short shrift here. Like we've been talking about Novak and Rafa for months because Roger hasn't been playing. And today it just so happened that some quirky, funny, interesting things happened in the Federer match. 
but Novak played brilliantly today. And it was interesting. Some of his fans were a little bit upset that he was on Longlin because there was potentially weather moving in. And I was in a little uh, debate, friendly debate on Twitter with some of his fans. Um, and I was saying, it's not so bad to be on Longlin. And they're like, no, he needs to be in Chatrier so that he can be protected in case there's weather. But he just made such quick work that um, it, it didn't even matter. And then weather didn't end up being a threat. So um, that's just Novak. That I just want to add one little thing. One of our YouTube um, watchers, viewers, what, was wondering how Novak's doing with the drop shot because that's always a, a deal for him on clay. And when he's got it going and he's hitting it well, he's brilliant with it. But so far for this tournament in the match versus Sangren, he's three of 13 with the drop shot, 31%. And today versus Cuevas, four of 11 for 36%. That's points one, like, right? What would, be, what yeah. would be a good, I mean, what's, what are we looking at with this? What do we want this to be about 70, 75%? I, something over 50 don't you guys think i mean if you're going to employ it you need to be winning with it most of the time especially because you're usually in an offensive position when yep. you hit the shot yep. right so why did you squander why did you squander a chance yeah i mean and some some shots for example some shots even if you're less than half you gain you gain like a quarter point credit for example i don't i think if you come to net even if you lose the point, you 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 planted send a message. You sent a message, and you also planted a seed of more of of more to come. How many passing shots do you have in your bag? But the drop shot is something. If I'm if I'm winning more than half your drop shot points, you go hey yeah, how's that drop shot working for you? Right. So it's maybe not he's playing it into form. No, I I think he's been hitting so many over the course of the last year, like. Uh, I I think it's I think he hits it really well on on the backhand and I think it's a good weapon for him. Cuevas does like to play far back, so you know, keep him uh, try try to try to affect his positioning a little bit. You know, make him play a little bit closer to the baseline so it'll be easier to hit through him. A lot of people I think discount the uh, the value of being far behind the baseline in terms of how much more court you're able to cover. So I think in terms of Novak's forehand potency, for example, if Cuevas is three feet behind the baseline, Novak might be able to hit a forehand by him and hit through the court. But if he's eight feet behind the baseline, it's going to be a little bit harder. And, you know, same goes for maybe even more so if Novak has a backhand because that's the shot he normally hits the drop shot. So in that respect, I think it does have that effect where it, it might help even if you're not winning points. And I think this also gets to the tight tight moment of the match question. See, we know, I, I, we, I suspect Barankas, for example, the next opponent, Novak could beat him any way he wants. So then the yeah. question is, does Novak wish to invest in a tactic more, whether it's drop shots or comes in that, that's gonna help him down the road in a tournament, mm -hmm. or does that matter to him? And it's like, I, I found it fascinating how Novak has said how in tiebreakers, his basic policy is un don't miss. You know what I mean? He hunkers down. And of course, mm -hmm. that won him Wimbledon in 2019. But Nadal is the opposite. Nadal is thinking, I got it's not so much going for it. I've got to press because I can't, 
I don't want to be the passive Rafa and Rafa will move forward. And, and it's kind of a, it's a mindset. It's a hard wiring. It's how we see the game. I mean, how we're to have been taught. So I'd be curious to see how Novak, how, yeah, the drop shot is a very interesting barometer of aspects of the state of Novak, how much he's employing it. So yeah, Nadal shut it down in that French final last year. He did. He absolutely did. And I, I thought he, he moved up his court position to account for it because right. Novak was hitting it so often. Uh, Barankis um, has played Djokovic three times. Novak has won all three times. At the majors, just a pair of absolute blowouts. Uh, U.S. Open 2013 and last year at Roland Garros. Uh, that one was in the second round. Novak won at 6-1, 6-2, 6-2. And uh, Cincinnati last year was actually a really good match on a very different surface. Uh, Djokovic won that one 7-6. 6-4, and Barankis actually uh, played awesome and kind of redlined in that match. So uh, Novak, though, definitely is the beneficiary of – there were some seeds near him in the draw. I think Hugo Umber would have been the seed that he were to play in this round who just does not win on clay, just does not. And and Novak gets the beneficiary of, of Barankis now coming through that section. But, of course, he doesn't really need that um, – he doesn't need the draw help, but he is getting it nonetheless. And these players like Barankis, it's funny, of, of the three, of the big three, Novak kind of plays the most frequently employed contemporary game. There isn't a, there isn't a guy who plays on the ATP kind of like Nadal or Federer really that much. So Novak sees these guys, whether it's uh, Barankis or people better, such as Gofan or Nishikori. It's like, oh, yeah, you guys are like, you guys are like my brothers. You play kind of like me. I do it better. You know, you got your yeah. two-handed, and you're and you can you can move, and you're pretty consistent. But guess what? I'm better at that. I'm better. I'm more. It's a little bit what Chris Everett became with a lot of those stock order baseliners. I just do this mm -hmm. better. I hit it deeper, harder. Okay, enough. How about Cole Schreiber beating Karatsev today? I mean, shock. <laughs> I love the, that. As I said it last time, I'll say it again. The seas are parting for the big three. <laughs> well, the seas are parting, but also on behalf of Cole Schreiber, I put out this tweet. I don't know if it was a year ago or four years ago. I said, the world will end. The, the planets will be turned into dust, and there will be Cole Schreiber 30 to 60 in the rankings. I mean, he's just <laughs> talk about uh, sustainability and longevity. I mean, that's a darn good effort for someone who's about 5'10", one-handed backhand, but he's fit. And he went after it. Here he just took down someone who's been kind of a little bit of the, um, you know, the it boy of 2021. It's a mm -hmm. great effort. And you're, but yep. Amy's point is right. That means we, we're not expecting Cole Schreiber to, to be there on the last weekend. So, right, the parting of this. So they're just eliminating the, the other contenders. Rublev out too there. And Schwartzman right. comes into the tournament in bad form. So let's see if, if Nadal gets Diego. Uh, who, again, he's actually has a really positive head-to-head -head against Diego as well, besides for Rome last year. All right, Nadal, speaking of Nadal, and speaking of uh, I do it better than you, it's a meeting of lefties between Rafa and Cam Nori. Nadal has faced him twice. The total sets are 5-0 uh, in favor of Rafa, and they played in Barcelona this year. Nadal won 6-1, 6-4, but Nori's having a tremendous clay court season. Any thoughts on that one? Well, well, let's hear it from Rafa. Well, he's a great player. He's winning plenty of matches this year. No, I mean, every week. <laughs> he is. That's true. And of course, the no. Players. No? 
<laughs> I know it's going to be a tough one. I need to be ready to play my best. I know this style of game that is not easy to play against. I need to play well. So it's just, it's just, yeah. Once again, once but again. But Joel, lefty versus lefty. What do you see there as a lefty? As a lefty, the lefty versus lefty thing is a bit tricky. You got the cross court forehands, and it's a little bit awkward, and so it mm -hmm. requires a little bit of, of adjusting. I mean, Nadal has had a a few tricky moments versus lefty Verdasco, mm -hmm. right? Verdasco beat him in Australia, tested him there once too, beat him at, uh, at one of the spring clay. But I think that lefty, again, with Rafa, you better be hitting it. You better go after it. So that's kind of the, the, the tough thing. One little tip I learned as a lefty playing lefties, you hit the forehand approach shot down the line to the backhand. Lefties usually like to hit the backhand passing shot cross court. Yeah. They see it early and they like to, it's like Shapovalov. They like to slash it and see, it can't help but see that angle and that whip dip. It's kind of like the, the labor legacy. So is that, is that a, but then again, this is going to be more of a baseline battle of mm -hmm. guys. And so the, the, the lefty asset things get pretty uh, minimalized as the clay match wars on. Those lefty lefty things were more from the, the Tony Roach, Rod Labor, John McEnroe, Martina, the stiletto lefties. Now we're in kind of the, the different. These guys are, you know, hitting big off both sides. Yeah, that, that that's interesting, Joel. Um, Feliciano Lopez is how how old? Maybe uh, approaching forty or something like 40, that. Thirty-nine. Yeah. he's more of the old school stiletto stiletto lefty. Well, right. And what I was going to say is, I think he's hit about three down the line backhand passing shots in his career. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Let's go to another lefty, which Roger Federer is playing and Dominic Kepfer. I found it interesting. Federer seemed delighted that he was playing a lefty, which is still like, you know, a part of his narrative, like, okay, I'm getting ready. I'm getting experience. I'm feeling these new things. So Roger was like, oh, great. It's a new thing. It's a lefty. And he seemed really happy about playing a lefty in Dominic Kepfer. He just beat Taylor Fritz. He's like a strong player in terms of being a big hitter, lots of power, long strokes, a little stocky. And that's my, my description. I uh, happened to catch one of Kepfer's matches early in the clay season. And he is someone who does not quit in a point. He is incredibly fit and uh, played college in the United States. He's German, but he played at Tulane. And I think he's a little bit older. He might be 27. Uh, so I, to me, this is fascinating because, you know, 27 years old, college player, and he finally gets to play Roger Federer, um, but he's he's a hustler. So I, I find it to be a fascinating matchup. So if we look at these matchups, not just these matchups, but matchups, the gestalt is usually that uh, Nadal is always wary, leery. He, he's got to prepare. No matter who he's playing, R Rafa knows He's got to be ready for this guy because this guy is great and nothing less than work. And Federer is kind of usually delighted. He's delighted because it's a lefty. He's delighted because it's a guy who's in the third round. He's <laughs> he kind of has this interest. What would you guys say? What, what's Novak? Is he, what's his gestalt as he gets ready to play a, a match? What do you think? Wow. Does, I mean, what does Novak typically say? He, he doesn't typically do the old, um, that guy is amazing when, you know, no. he's somebody that nobody's ever heard of or no. I, what is it? What does Novak do? 
I think it's a little bit, I'm going to focus on me and play my best. Yeah. Um, okay. Right. I think it's, it's a, there's kind of a, I will, you know, I will change for no, you know, no, I fear no man. And I am going to do what I do. You know, I don't think he's very, he doesn't, at least verbally, he's not very opponent focused to me. Is that right. Whereas that's it. Well, that's in, in the way his game is. And then, and then Rafa's opponent focused is not, maybe it's tactical, but it's also kind of like mental, emotional. I've got to be ready for this guy. Lenzel, out. Yeah. Do not ever underestimate anyone. And Roger is a little bit more, well, it's not about estimating. I said, oh, a, a, another patient to see who comes into the practice. Let me read the file. I mean, I remember a few years ago in Australia, he was going to play Fuksevich, and he was asked if he knew him. Oh, yeah, we played a best of five practice match a few weeks ago. It's like, you know, Dr. Fetter has your file. He's taking in all these signals, and he's reading things. But, yeah, Novak, yeah, that's interesting. He focuses on his and getting his arsenal down, his 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 mm -hmm. strokes and his movements. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And let's watch tomorrow and see what the FFT does in terms of scheduling and where they put the guys. I, I believe it's Novak's turn to get a, a middle of the day match on Chatrier in front of yep. some fans, you know, and let's see if Roger gets that night match in front of nobody. Right. They have all, it's like they have these places they have to put the, we got long run, we got time, we got night. Yeah, that's right. Cause it's Roger's turn. It should it, Roger hasn't played a night yet, but I don't know what they're doing with this night scheduling. I can't figure it out. Do they do they like those matches? Do they not like those matches? Generally, they've been really good matches. But then, you know, the I and I don't blame I don't blame the fans. But uh, Twitter is complaining. I also complained because there's no crowd. So I don't want a French guy playing an epic match. It, with, there are no French players in the draw on the men's side, so we won't have to worry about that. But I don't want you know, I don't want that on center court with nobody there. I want the French guy with the crowd. So right, but we, but uh, um, domestic television, French TV, nine yes. o'clock at night, French player playing the king. Right, because there they like know. nine o'clock starts for some to reason. To pretend to pretend it was America, and it was and it was Isner. You have Isner at the night match playing. No. I don't know, Joel. I would want is much of an fans. analogy. I no, want no. fans. Okay. Never mind. Okay. Uh, I'm covering Isner and Tsitsipest tomorrow night. So there you I would go. just rather the non-French players and Carlos Suarez Navarro with no fans. It's been a mess. The curfew, like the Sanga left the court with no fans. Anyway, we digress. Um, we move on to round three. We'll continue with these uh, recap preview episodes. Very, very fun. That'll do it for this episode of three. Uh, we are available on all podcast platforms. Leave a rating and a review on Apple. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, make sure that you like the video. Leave a comment if you'd like. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.